Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, and welcome to the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival. I'm so glad you're joining us for this virtual presentation, three fabulous nonfiction writers for the panel, Personal Reflections. My name is Beth Ann Fennelly, and I'm a professor of English at the University of Mississippi, a proud board member of the Mississippi Festival, a book festival. And I've just stepped down from my role as poet laureate, giving me a little more time for nonfiction. And I really was excited to talk to these three poets. I'm sorry, it couldn't be in person, but thank you. Thank you for joining us, um, including Lauren Huff is joining us from her car in Texas while doing a journalism piece. So that is dedication. Well done. I'm going to... Um, read the bios of these writers, and then we're going to get into the conversation. So I'm going to start with Helen Ellis. Helen Ellis is the author of Southern Lady Code, American Housewife, and Eating the Cheshire Cats. Raised in Alabama, she lives with her husband in New York City. You can find her on Twitter at, like I guess, just the at sign, what I do all day. I'm not on Twitter, but I'm going to try to not screw this up. And Instagram, the at, and then American-housewife. So fabulous. Next, we have Lauren Huff, who was born in Germany and raised in seven countries and West Texas. She's been an airman in the U.S. Air Force, a green aproned barista, a bartender, a livery driver, and for a time, a cable guy. Her work has appeared in Granta, The Wrath-Bearing Tree, The Guardian, and HuffPost. She lives in Austin. And finally, Amy Nisikamatatsil is the New York Times best-selling author of World of Wonders in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. Finalist for the Kirkus Prize in nonfiction and recently named the Barnes & Noble Book of the Year. She's also the author of four books of poetry and is the poetry editor of Sierra, the national magazine of the Sierra Club. Awards for her writing include a fellowship from the Mississippi Arts Council, Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award for Poetry, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, ESPN Magazine, and twice in Best American Poetry. She's Professor of English and Creative Writing in the University of Mississippi's MFA program. Welcome, all three of you, and thank you for meeting me here through the, the magic of the internet. So if you don't mind, Helen, I'm going to start with you, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your path to writing and your path to publication, because I, I know your um, your path there isn't necessarily the straight and narrow path that someone might have fallen if they, they wanted to get an A in class. So talk to us a little bit about how you got where you are. Well, I started off very straight and narrow and um, went to graduate school at NYU, came out, published a book, and that was in 1999. And then I wrote another novel and no one would publish it. And then I wrote another novel and no one would publish it. And then I wrote a third novel and no one would publish that. And then I quit writing for years and nobody cares. <laughs> and when I would be at parties, people would say, you know, what do you do? And I'd stop saying writer. And mm -hmm. I started saying housewife. And if there was another question, which there usually was not another question, it was, what do you do all day? Uh -huh. And unbeknownst to anybody, I started this account on Twitter called what I do all day and started to see these patterns emerge uh, I, where I was talking about book club, I was talking about reality television, and 
I wrote a story about a writer who goes on a reality television show. You know, I would like to see Stephen King doing the Mambo on Dancing with the Stars. Um, Took that out into the slush, got it pulled and did it again and again. And then in 2015, um, sat ass backwards into a short story collection. Um, And then I wrote a piece for uh, Modern Love about becoming a recovering slob to save my marriage. And my publishing house said, do you want to write nonfiction? I said, sure. And that's <laughs> how hard can that be? Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so I sort of just have gotten my, my writing life back after a very long, long period of failure. Uh, I'm very happy to be here amongst the poets. I was going to ask how you made the transition from fiction to nonfiction. It's interesting. The idea came externally, but it, it, it suited you. Um, I mean, by accident. And let me tell you, nonfiction is a lot easier than fiction for me because I don't have to uh-huh. make anything up. So, yeah. so, um, so I'm having a great time. Yeah, it's funny how different genres suit different people, because one time I was talking with Tayari Jones, who's a fabulous novelist, and she said, she can never write nonfiction because as soon as she starts to write nonfiction, she says, I know it would make this good. You know, and then she's gone away from fact, away from truth, you know? So you, you've taken the other route. Interesting. And, um, you know, one part of your circuitous path is your poker playing prowess. Would you like to confess? And here I'll tell the, the watchers, they don't even know when you signed onto this zoom you had your poker playing alias and you had to go in and change your name back to helen ellis so no one knows your alias because my poker aliases yes maybe we'll tell people what your poker alias is we have some good intel here beware mrs harris um (laughs) oh you gave it away now i have no power (laughs) believe me i miss it terribly i'm probably going to go to the world series in october um which will be the first time i've played live since January of 2020 and I miss live poker terribly because what I love about it is um, I love playing with strangers. I love sitting down at tables that would never have me to begin with. Um, I love being quiet and not entertaining anyone and I love being a killer which is what poker is all about um and I love the zen of it. It's like a meditation to me to sit there for 15 hours and play which is sort of like uh, writing is, you know, it's the only other place where I lose time. Mm. Are there any other ways that playing poker has shaped your writing process, you know, beyond subject matter, because you've written really wonderfully about it, but, um, you know, beyond subject matter in terms of style or craft or technique? It has taught me how to fail. Poker has taught me how to fail uh, because I play a lot of tournament poker where you play down to one player. And if you make the top you know, if you cash 10% of the time, you're doing great. So that means you're busting out, belting um, 90% of the time. But there's always another game and there's always another story to tell. Wow, that's great. I, I think that that's really fabulous. Um, can you support your writing habit with your poker habit? Absolutely not. <laughs> that's not the answer I, I wanted say, but right now the writing gambling they're gambling through writing uh the fact that I would think anybody would want to read what I write is paying off better than than the poker so yeah well I can tell you right now everyone wants to read what you're writing because your voice is so fabulous and um I'm just going to hold out my copy of bring your 
baggage and don't pack light, which everyone should be ordering right now at their local independent bookstore. And, um, or you could get it from mine, which is Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, where it comes with a, a already signed nameplate. But um, I, I heard you read on Thacker Mountain and it was like stand up to hear <laughs> you read your own work. Um, do you have any background training in acting? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm glad there's something that you, you don't claim a background in. You know, I come from generations of Southerners where, you know, dinner table storytelling is a competitive sport. So I'm not, I'm not the funny one in my family. I find that hard to believe. Now I want to go home with your family for Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I love the way you use humor and, um, you know, not only because you're deft with it, but you use it, um, you know, for example, in the first essay, it's about taking a trip with your girlfriends and some of the hijinks, but it's also about one of them going through breast cancer and having a bad diagnosis. And, you know, the way that you're using humor and, um, you know, always coming back to, um, you know, a fact about this is and like bringing us back down and then lifting us back up. So there's a, a big emotional trajectory in reading your pieces that, you know, so it's not humor writing, you know, it's um, it's it's got too too much movement. But maybe instead of me blathering about it, would you be persuaded to read a section? Okay, you asked for it, lady. Well, I did. I did ask for it. Okay, so I'm going to read a very short section. Okay. In our marriage, my talent is talking about you and your sex life, which I know nothing about, unless I do. If you told me about your sex life, I've told my husband. I've said, those two do it every Saturday. I've said, those two have costumes. I've said, he has a nylon fetish. She has 30 full body stockings. I've said, she listens to 200 erotic audiobooks a year because she plays them at three times the normal speed, so they sound like a chipmunk orgy. My husband does not appreciate such details because he worries that if a friend has shared something this juicy with me, I have reciprocated. You know, tits for tats, like a pornography potluck. My husband worries that he, he engages with me, he'll encourage me. And he's right. Because the only reason to go to a potluck is to then come home and talk about how somebody else has... <laughs> And somebody else uses malt vinegar instead of mayonnaise in her potato salad. Awesome. Oh, so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. So, you know, one of the things I love about your use of humor, I was talking about your placement, but also I like how you vary the kinds of humor because I see you moving from understatement to overstatement and, um, you know, crazy specificity and then amazing metaphors. And I'm just going to read my favorite metaphor from Are You There? Menopause. It's me, Helen, where you were recommended by your doctor to go on birth control. You say, I'm not going on birth control at 49 years old. My age is my birth control. My reproductive system looks like an hourglass with six grains of sand left. You know, just like the specificity of six grains and the visual image. I mean, um, I, I just- I'll picture you, my uterus. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. We're picturing your uterus and it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us. I'm, I've got a couple more questions for you and I'm going to- circle back later but before yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to you later but um thank you that was awesome that was really fun okay so Lauren Huff you're in the hot seat literally in the car in Texas and you probably can't even have your air conditioning on can you uh I do have it on I have it on the lowest setting it's almost okay. enough um, yeah. okay so, so you're an environmentalist you're saying 
but <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, um, in your bio that I read, it there was a long list of jobs that that you have done, and there there were some pretty interesting ones there. And I noticed in the back of your your book in your acknowledgments page, you actually thank the bar owners where you were a bouncer because you got to do a lot of your work in downtimes when there weren't customers coming in. And I'm coming to you from Oxford, Mississippi, where we have um, a physical plant where Faulkner wrote when he was a night janitor and he got the job. He was not a clean person, you know, much like our friend Helen Ellis, um, not a clean person, but got a job as a night janitor so he could write at night. He turned over a wheelbarrow and would write his manuscripts. So um, I wanted to know, you know, a little bit more about how your path through these various jobs um, affected your ability to become a writer, because at one point in the book, you talk about knowing when you were 16, you wanted to be a writer. But again, you didn't go the straight college MFA route. So talk to us a little bit about how how you're sitting in a car in Texas right now, writing for Texas Monthly. And I guess it, it makes this position really comfortable for me. Because this is how I wrote a lot. I would write on, when I was working as a cable guy, I would, I would sit at the back of Home Depot's or McDonald's and write. And because you know, I didn't want to store it on my work computer, I'd go on to Google Docs. And so, yeah, I needed Wi-Fi. So, yeah, I would, I would sit like this in a work truck. Um, I, and I wrote most of the cable guy piece by working as a cable guy when I was sitting outside of a bar checking IDs. It occurs to me as I'm saying this that maybe the reason I'm so stuck with writing is because I've had way too much time on my hands. Um, that, yeah, now it's time to write. And I have no idea how to do that. Uh, it did. It took a long time for me to, be, to learn to sit at it. I bought a desk. I was going to be a person who writes at a desk, and that lasted a week, maybe. It's the <laughs> table worked. Uh, um, is where I finally landed. I tried the couch, but that's way too close to a nap. Like once your shoes are off, you're gonna, you're done. I didn't learn, I learned how to write. I, everybody else learns how to write, whether they go to college or not, by reading mm -hmm. um, everything that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. So, and I got for libraries and library cards. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know how, I don't know how long it would have taken had I gone like the normal route. But I, mm -hmm. I don't know that it would have gone any faster. Really well, you, you wouldn't have written the book that you wrote. That's for sure. You know, I wouldn't have. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of weird stories now, so that works out. At what point, when you were looking at your weird stories, did you think? Well, I guess I have a question about conception because you also said something kind of interesting in your acknowledgments page where you thanked your editor at Vintage, quote, who convinced me to write in essays. So what were you writing before you were writing essays? And did you conceive of this book as a full-length memoir or did you conceive of it as a collection of essays? Like, can you just talk about the book's construction a smidge? Um, I, tried, I tried to write a memoir and nobody wanted it. And it it wasn't what I wanted to write either. I had a different agent at the time and I was kind of just doing what I was told because they mm -hmm. were literary agents and mm -hmm. should I had one and yeah, I should do They're the boss everything. Of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the book didn't sell. So I, I was in the process of failing out of creative writing at community college in Austin. Um, and uh, I wrote a Twitter thread about you guys want to hear some dumb cable guy stories and I was just killing time um, between school and work. And that went viral and someone wanted a story of it. I thought it was kind of a throwaway essay. 
Like I, I, I needed to take my dog to the vet. I didn't realize, and it went massively viral, wow. and everybody read it apparently. And still, when my new agent Jamie, who's always right by the way, and I never listened to her, um, <laughs> was like, "Hey, we should do essays instead of a memoir." I was in a lot of writing groups online at the time, and the conventional wisdom was essays don't sell. So mm-hmm. I told them, it's dumb. I mean, essays don't sell. I don't want to do essays. And then we talked to Tim at Knapp, and he's like, you should do essays. Yeah, I have to swallow a lot of crew around her. But uh, I stupidly thought they would be easier. They were not. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how hard writing a memoir would be because I never wrote a good one. But uh, I, I, yeah, I thought it would be easier. But more, I, I thought it would be fun, and I thought it would allow me more freedom to play with chronology and throw a lot of opinion in there and not have to worry so much about structuring an entire book. I could form mm-hmm. each essay around a thought and bring in whatever else came up with that. Well, that sounds smart to me. And I, I see what you mean too about um, being able to play with chronology and, um, you know, n- not being beholden to certain, a certain kind of continuity that you'd need if you were writing a full length memoir, because even though the essays are connected and it has the satisfaction of reading someone's memoir, because we see your life at so many different parts, um, you're able to have essays that feel totally different from each other in a way that you might not have been able to, if you were writing like a one piece thing. Yeah. One thing I really like about your style is, um, your tone, which is really understated and wry, a lot of really short sentences and that give you kind of like a punchy edge and really contribute a lot to your humor. So I was wondering, is there, um, is there a prose stylist that works with short sentences that you were reading and loving, or did you just kind of come to this voice on your own? Uh, it's probably a combination of the above. I don't know. It's not cool to love Hemingway, but was probably my first short sentence writer who mm-hmm. I wanted to copy and then mm-hmm. I read everything that sounded exactly like him but bad um <laughs> and so those way I wrote a lot of stories and books that sound a whole lot like whoever I read last mm-hmm. and I think I just came to this on my own and sort of a it took a long time to learn to write the way I talk is uh, the difference between it Yes, I've felt very much that um, I was in the hands of a pro stylist who was reading words aloud to herself and thinking about how things sound on the page because there is that kind of conversational tone, even though um, it, it never lapses from the literary into being chit chat. It's got a very strong oral component. Um, with that being said, maybe you could share something with us. Okay. I never know what to read when people ask me to read. So um, just read the dirty parts then. <laughs> Man, there's a paragraph. I don't know why they let me put that in there, but there's a. I still think about it now when I like, talk to people who've read the book, especially older people. There's my aunt Nancy has read this book. There's just a paragraph of a list of sex acts, and I'm like, yes, read that, please. <laughs> <didn't> they... <laughs> no, it's not the one I'm reading. Sorry, it's it's in there though. Uh, and Nancy's read it. <laughs> um, the voice who sings Aaliyah is the only inmate I've seen. This was the first day. I was being led from the nurse's office, the skin on my forearm freshly lumped with a TB test. Me, still thinking the worst humiliation was a squat and cough when they took my clothes. 
when they handed me these green coveralls that smell like ammonia. The woman who would sing Aaliyah stood in the hallway between two deputies, her arms and face and legs more scabs than skin, her hair wild and greasy and flecked with dust, her eyes swollen. I nodded. She looked at nothing in front of her with nothing eyes that see nothing. She wore a blanket like the inmates sleep under, like the kind they hang in an elevator when someone's moving. But hers is sewn into a tunic that closes with Velcro. She tried to kill herself. She failed. I remembered the tunic and wiped my, the blood off the wall with a wad of toilet paper and flushed the wad. I look at my hand, my mincemeat knuckles, and I'm afraid. The worst thing I can think of, a loss of freedom worse than this. No way to take my own life. I can't let them see I'm losing my mind or I've lost it. I can't tell anymore. They closed the asylums, too inhumane. Now they just watch and wait for the lunatics to commit a crime. This country's a hell of a place to lose your mind. There's no moment you know when you've lost your mind. That's the upside. You slide into madness and the madness tells you you're fine. Madness tells you to hit the wall, pick a hole in your arm, nothing better to do. The voices ask if you're okay and you know you screamed, but you didn't hear your own voice. The voices ask you to sing the angel song again. The voices are getting on your goddamn nerves. But you sing the angel song that John Prine wrote, that Bonnie sang. The voices like the song. You understand the voices are trying to help. They feel bad for telling you to hit the wall. They feel bad for telling you to try again with your head. You sing a song about the angel from Montgomery to keep the voices happy. God, amazing. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, I'm really interested that you chose that passage too, because, um, you know, it's it's one of the really kind of serious things that happens in the book. And there's a lot that's funny and you get a lot of mileage out of some of the crazy characters that come in and you yourself, like your voice is so funny, but it does make me want to ask this question, just thinking about material there's so much difficult stuff in the book because you were raised in a, a religious cult. That's why you spent so much time out of the country. I'm just kind of giving a, a quick play-by-play for people who haven't read the book yet, although I'm sure everyone's going to be ordering it after that passage. Um, it was also a sex cult. Um, you finally got out of that, joined the military, were raped, were harassed for being gay, um, You know, went to jail, drugs, problems. Like the, There's so much trauma how do you handle that as a writer? How do you balance giving the reader enough details to engage them without settling for trauma porn? Uh-oh. I'm so sorry we lost her. I know she'd have something great to say about that. Well, I'm going to make her answer that when she comes back to us. Yeah. But she's still she's still frozen, so I'm I am going to move over to Amy if that's okay. So it's really fun for me to share this panel with Amy Nizukumatatil because we have been friends for many years and I have admired her poems for many, many years. We kind of came up together like young pups. Um, Amy was in SUNY, New York, and I was here at the University of Mississippi. And here we have a really great, fun position called the John and Renee Grisham Writer in Residence. It's a one-year position, and you get to invite someone to campus. And we invited Amy, who came with her fabulous husband, Dustin, and Jasper and Pascal, their two super adorable sons. And um, everyone fell in love with her and, and I, I made her stay. Like I, I was going to do like full Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan, like take out her kneecaps with a hammer, whatever I had to do, we got her to stay. And interestingly, you know, your poetry maybe helped shape your voice to deliver this first nonfiction book 
that's you know I think one like best book of the universe forever or said so, there was some award that it won like I don't know it's just been crazy the reception it's had could you talk a little bit about your path as a poet and how it shaped your your discovery of this book sure sure um it's always so fun to to chat with you Bethann because I just feel like um anytime like I was so delighted when um when they mentioned that you're doing this festival because I just think of you as one of my kind of like guiding lights in the constellation of good writer people. There's good writers and then there's good people, but good writer people is I think rare. And um, so I wanted to start by saying that. And then I think just going on to your question, I think, gosh, I don't know if I can say one specific thing from poetry that helped me, um, except for the fact that I had to work on just about basically everything else on this book, except I didn't really have to work on making metaphors and working on music. (laughs) That was, Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of my home training, you know, that kind of thing. What I did have to work on, and you know this because I'd be at your dinner table, you know, like my hands um, up to my, you know, pulling at my hair and saying, Bethany, I don't know how to write sentences anymore. (laughs) You know, like I'm always wondering about the line break and, um, Mm -hmm. And you always just kept encouraging, you can do this, come on now, you know, pull up your paint, you know, just, you can do this, pull up your boots, you can do this. And I just, um, yeah, so I I think if anything, just to flip the question a little bit, it definitely served me good training for writing metaphors and music um, and pacing and knowing when to spool and unspool in a, in a um, paragraph or not, but it hurt me a little bit because I was so used to building tension on every time I hit return, you know, and Mm -hmm. I realized once I, once I got away from that, then I realized, I mean, the floodgates opened. It was like, I was free to unspool my sentences. Um, So it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. I don't, uh, necessarily say like, oh, this this book came easy because it did not. All of my close friends know that I was uh, when I was drafting this book, I was in severe discomfort to say the least. Uh, and then it was in the revision. I love um, what poetry has also given me is that I can actually look at my work um, pretty clear. Um, you helped give such amazing line edits, and then boom! Once that it was like push up the sleeves, get to work. Um, and I and I was able to kind of dig in and tinker. And that's my fun part. My favorite part is actually revising everything. Um, I don't know if I would have had that joy of revising sentences if I didn't have that joy in revising poems too, but. I like that. And it's great that you um, mentioned the word joy because this book is suffused with joy. And so people who haven't read it yet, should know what a delight it is to fall into the world of wonders because Amy has chosen different creatures and um, plants and things from the natural world that she's intrigued by. And the sections are short. She does this deep dive where she looks with her amazing attention and, and makes these things that we might've seen, but never really thought about like fireflies or you know, more extreme creatures that we've probably never seen. She is able to make them come alive to us in such a way that we are astonished by 
the fact that we are on a planet with these things. Um, so I was wondering, Amy, if you could talk about the role of wonder. How how were you brought to these creatures? What gave you the idea to write this book? What was your goal? Yeah, you know, um, well, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. Um, you know, one way that was um, when I was kind of putting this together, one kind of just central question I had is mm-hmm. not just what brings me joy or what what am I what do I have questions about, but what helps me be flat out you use the word astonished, astonished, mm-hmm. curious that I, even if it's something like a monarch butterfly, that that's probably the number one butterfly that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about the butterfly that astonishes me? That makes me someone who knows a lot about butterflies um, still want to know more and more and more um, mm-hmm. that I never get enough of. And how can I be, how can I kind of take my nerdiness? I mean, really, when it comes down to it, I'm just a big kind of nerd. Um, how do I take that nerdiness and make it helpable? How do I share that with somebody else and make them, make it feel contagious that they will then want to go and look at the wings of a monarch just a little bit longer or Mm -hmm. um, stop and look up at a catalpa tree just a little bit longer, something that they maybe walked past several times or something like the cassowary, which I've never seen. It's the only murderous bird. I call it the living dinosaur on this planet. Um, How they can also feel tenderness towards things um, that they've never seen. My hope is that when we have that practice, and it is a practice, Beth Ann. Oh my goodness, it mm-hmm. is not that I just wake up and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm astonished at the world. You know, I mean, oh my goodness, 2020 and and still now, many times I just want to be in a fetal position and with, throw a weighted blanket on my head, you know. But it is a practice that has served me my whole life. And mm-hmm. I find that when we are let when we let ourselves be astonished. We Mm -hmm. let ourselves be tender and more vulnerable and we open ourselves to want to know more about people who are different than us, honestly. So this focuses on plants and animals, but my hope is that if, if I could get you to be astonished by a pink salamander, maybe just maybe that might carry over to being astonished and curious about a little girl who lives on the other side of this planet. Um, a different religion, different sexuality, different physical abilities, um, someone different than themselves, that they'll feel tender, that you'll feel tender towards that difference rather than scared or frightened of that difference. Well, even though the book is about plants and animals, there are a lot of humans and the human relationships in the book are really important. You talk, I mean, really beautiful pastors about growing up and what you learned from your parents and what you, you know, have appreciated about their different cultures. And um, also you have a a role in the middle because you're also passing on nature lessons to your sons. Mm -hmm. How has being a a mother shaped this book? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the central, it's, it's the central kind of heartbeat of this book. You know, I, I want to, preface this that when I was single and before I even knew before I met my husband before I knew that I wanted kids 
I always would kind of roll my eyes. I know this is not what you're asking, but I want to preface this for other people out there because I'd hear parents say things like, well, when I became a dad or when I became a mother, I became kind or, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suddenly started to care. And that drove me bonkers, you know, like, yeah. what? Oh, like a single person can't be kind or care about the planet. You know, I know that's not what you're asking, but I do have to say that this was kind of disparate essays, the central piece of it, because I had 200 of these really originally, 200 little mini essays on plants and animals. I narrowed it down to my top 30. And the only two pairs of eyes I was envisioning was not my agent, not an editor, not even my husband, but was my sons. I wanted to them to know young when I was making this, they were um, six and nine, I believe um, when I, when I was kind of really putting these together, but I was just picturing them even about at the age that they are now, uh, 14 and uh, 11, what, what would, how would they, what record would they have of what their mother thought was important on this planet? So that, I love that. stuff about my mom and dad, stuff about their father, my husband, stuff about them and stuff about my friends. I had never mm-hmm. seen a book that had, First of all, an Asian American who was outside, <laughs> they, they just never had Asian Americans outdoors doing anything. And then I also never saw Asian Americans who um, really had loving relationships with their families, who actually liked their husbands, and who who kind of cherished their parents um, in ways. Um, as far as the kids go, uh, you are actually such a model for not just me, but so many people on this on this planet of writing about um, this astonishing, heart swelling love affair with your husband and love affair with your kids. And I think that's so rare to see that someone has that kind of love. Like that you can, you know, as Walt Whitman says, do I contain multitudes? Very well, I contain multitudes. That someone can love lipstick and mtv and also care about the planet mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be one or the other because i'd always all the books i saw were a man st- walking into the wilderness leaving their family behind and never speaking of them ever again and mm-hmm. she's like where what about the little indian man who grows mangoes and gives them to his republican neighbors or the mother who's not the greatest with outward demonstrations of love but fills my car with fruit every time I visit her you know that kind of mm-hmm. thing he taught me how to tend a garden mm-hmm. so well one last question before I ask you to read something Amy if I may um how does the role of wonder which is so central to your aesthetic and your book project how do you balance that with impending climate change and global demise <laughs> impending like any minute now how, how do you how do you make that work in your head um daily rosé with my husband nice (laughs) at the end of the day when the kids are asleep and um you know I would say it is I would say it's a practice so first of all I would say when wonder and astonishment becomes a habit Mm -hmm. you simply feel less alone Mm -hmm. um so there's that and it's something that I kind of learned as an early age because I could have been I, you know, I had a very, I moved around so many times. Often my younger sister and I were always the only brown people in a classroom. We could have had very lonesome. We also grew up um, for many years 
on the grounds of a mental facility where my mom worked. Um, so we could have had very lonesome childhoods. We never did, um, not just because of my younger sister and I had each other, but because we, um, gosh, I don't know, there was always something to learn about. I don't know, my parents modeled that for me. There was always something to be curious and wonder over. Now, I will say there are people who get activated and motivated to do uh, to to make change um out of fear or out of Mm -hmm. anger or um out of shame um that's not what I wanted to do with this book I get motivated like I was asking myself how do I get motivated to do any action and it's from love I get motivated to make phone calls to my you know to senator or um show up to a garden club and ask hey can can we advocate more native plants here or something like that? Born from a place of love, not out of shaming Mm -hmm. other people or putting the fear of God in them or anything like that. Um, There's other books that do that. And that is great. That's just not who, who I am. So it would feel false to be saying there, there's all this doom and gloom and chaos and destruction happening. And I'm not at all saying, put your head in the sand for it. Um, you know, yesterday I found out my friend just told me that it rained in Greenland for the first time ever wow. in the history of Greenland. Um, well, wow. if I ponder that too much, I would just be back in the fetal position, you know, um, that kind of thing. But Margaret Atwood said, the future has not been written yet. The future mm-hmm. has not been written yet. And I love that, that, that hope is a powerful thing. It's not the only thing. But for me, it is a it is something that kept me going through the pandemic that if you are working out of love, it doesn't become work so much. It's just it becomes who you are. Like, I want to make this change because that's me. That's what I believe in. God, that's awesome, Amy. I love that. Very inspirational to hear you talk about this book. Would you read a little bit of it for our our watchers? Sure, sure, sure. Well, this is... um, I just got this in the mail a couple days ago. Um, my books are in boxes. I just moved across town. I'm just um, on the other side of Oxford from Beth Ann. And um, this is the British version. So all the spellings in here have the O-U, like favorite, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Um, but I did want to show, it's still the same pictures. And this oh, is good. be remiss to not mention um, this amazing, incredible um, Japanese-American artist, Fumi Nakamura, uh, who I found on Instagram. And Milkweed, my publisher, didn't flinch at all when I said, not only do I hope that this book will be illustrated, but that it would be illustrated by an Asian-American um, artist. I just didn't see any any um, photographers, artists in any of the nature books that I loved so much growing up. And she just nailed it out of the part. So this is, I'm going to do just a couple paragraphs from the chapter called Vampire Squid. Awesome. Favorite cephalopod in the universe. And if you don't have a favorite cephalopod, you better fix your life and figure that out tonight. All right. The Vampire Squid. If this squid feels threatened or wants to disappear, Perhaps no other creature in the ocean knows how to convey that with a more dazzling yet effective show. When the vampire squid pulse swims away, each of its arm tips glow and wave in different directions, confusing for any predator. To make an even more speedy getaway, 
The squid uses jet propulsion by flapping its fins down towards its mantle and simultaneously blasting a stream of water from its siphon, all of its arms in one direction. And in the next stroke, the squid raises all of its arms over its head in what is called a pineapple posture. The underside of these arms is lined with tiny tooth-like structures called ciri, giving an appearance of fangs ready to bite down on anything that wants to chase it down for a snack. As, as if that wasn't enough to shoo away a predator, the vampire squid discharges a luminescent cloud of mucus instead of ink. The congealed swirl and curlicue of light temporarily baffles the predator, who ends up not knowing where or what to jump, while the vampire squid whooshes away meters ahead. It's as if you were chasing someone and they stopped, turned, and tossed a bucket full of large, gooey green sequins at your face. <laughs> I wished I was a vampire squid the most when I was the new girl in high school. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That was awesome. I'm so glad you, you read that to us. Um, I do have a couple questions for the group, but um, before we do, I actually want to circle back, if I may, to Lauren, because I had just asked you a question and uh, uh, you, you dropped off, but I was asking you about balancing details with trauma and um, not like giving the reader enough, but not giving them the salacious details that that people want when they're not really there for the right reasons. How, how, how did you work that out in your book? Yeah, sorry, the Wi-Fi. But uh, yeah, I, a lot of it is just giving the the defense mechanism to the way, here's how I handle it. And by adding that joke or whatever, yeah, it's a defense mechanism for me, but I think it might help get through some of the crap that we can get so low and so dark. And then at some point you do have to give someone a release of the tension or they're not going to be be able i'm not gonna be able to finish the story and you're not gonna be able to finish reading that chapter but the other part of it is i just didn't more so than wanting to to keep stuff from you know the the trauma porn and someone enjoying reading the book for really warped reasons that i don't like to think about i didn't want it to be really traumatizing for anybody else to read the book mm-hmm. um and yeah there's there's a group of fucking sex cult there are there's some really awful stories and if you want to read them, they're easy to find. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't see the need to tell them because unless you're researching it, maybe there's probably not a reason for you to know. Yeah. I think a lot of that just came weirdly from therapy where you used to have this hydraulic theory of therapy or, you know, if you talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, it'll release the pressure. And it does have some value, but at some point you get to, okay, so where are we now? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I looked at the essays of, yeah, I can spend hours telling you horrible details about a cult or homelessness or jail or anything, but where does that get anyone? It, there's no point to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of it just comes from reading poetry and songwriting. You can tell mm-hmm. a lot about a guy by just saying, this is a guy who practices handshake. And everybody fills in mm-hmm. the guy who practices a handshake. You don't have to go through an entire description of him. Everybody fills in the details from their own life. And you can do the same thing with horror. It's the scene from Psycho. It's the handprint on the shower curtain versus mm-hmm. the entire scene. 
Mm-hmm. They'll give everybody everything they need to know. They'll fill it in if they need to, if they want to. And if not, let's move on. There's no need to get into it. One interesting decision that you made, it seemed to me, was that the book, while it touches on a lot of different parts of your life, it's not strictly organized chronologically. So, the um, for example, the title essay, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, is about leaving the cult in, I think you were living in Switzerland at the time, you and your mom, like getting out, you know, but you didn't have it early on in the book. So at that point, we've already met you in the army and we've met you as a bouncer and we've done a lot of things. And then we get into this, you know, kind of hard moment and it's separated from some of the earlier hard moments. So it seems to me you were very conscious of, um, you know, spacing out kind of the highs and the lows of your experience and saving this essay um, you know, for after people already knew you and had seen you in action, so to speak. Yeah, I think it was it was it was hard to balance the release of information without in the first essay, Solitaire. At some point, I have to explain. Okay, so this is a cult. It's called the Children of God. Because I'm going to keep referencing through that essay, and I don't want someone to like have to set the book down and go wiki this or you know. And then, you know, you're Googling your favorite stuff of a pod by the end of the night. It's, <laughs> and that is how that happens. So, yeah, to keep it in the book, you have to you have to give just enough information. But the story of leaving that honestly happened accidentally, it was as accidental as the title of the book. The title mm-hmm. was the file name that I had to change from this goddamn thing, that which was the name of the file, and I had to put something else. So... Mm-hmm. I picked a random line that I think got cut from the book eventually. And they were like, oh, we love this title. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. That's an amazing story. I was actually going to ask you about the title. And I had no idea the story would be that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had meetings about it. I argued about it. I still, like, everybody gets it. They say leaving is the hardest part. Part that Nobody knows what the title is. But they loved it. And I, again, sometimes people just know more than I do. Why not? Mm-hmm. I didn't really like my title anyway, so it was fine. Well, um, the passage that you read, like I was saying, um, you know, it, it gets to like one of the central and kind of important parts of, of your life and a big scene. But I did want to throw out one of my favorite metaphors that you wrote in this book, um, just to give people a sense of, um, you know, how great your observational powers are, because you're talking about what it was like to move to West Texas after being in Switzerland. Um, with the cult, where you say everything was colored in with crayons, green meadows dotted with splotchy cows, pink and purple geraniums overflowing their window boxes on brown chalets, turquoise lakes and blue skies and mountains left white at the top of the page. Amarillo looked like coffee spilled on a brown formica table. <laughs> so I, I just love those powers of observation and and just like the, the rhythm of the sentence there too. It, it's It's really nice, Lauren. Um, so thank you. Thank you for answering that question for me. Uh, I do have a question for everybody. And I'm asking this question for a selfish reason, because people ask me this question sometimes when I give readings. And I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about everyone's answers. What's it like to write about real people? I mean, in nonfiction, where you're using people's names and identities. I mean, Helen just read the passage where um, her friends come over and then they leave, and she and her husband their names, talk. Their names were not there. <laughs> I did notice that, but you know, now I want. Okay, because I do feel like I'm your new best friend because I love the book, and I want you to have me over for dinner. But then I know if you do, when I leave, you're going to talk about my sex life. So oh, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 I've been thinking about it this whole hour. <laughs> 
Um, but I, I, I would like kind of to hear everyone's answer on, do you show the people in your book, your nonfiction, if you're naming them or how do you, how do you work with, how do you work with truth telling? So I'll start with you, Helen, seeing as I've already called you out for being, you know. I'll use that story as an example. I write the piece and then Mm -hmm. it goes through my editor and then I polish Mm -hmm. it. And then this is, you know, if I, as soon as it's done, if you're in the story, I send you the story. And I and you're so all those women's names were in it. (laughs) Um, And I send you the story and I say, if, if I got it wrong, let me know. If you want me to take you out of it, let me know. If you want me to change your name. And sometimes people have changed their name, but most of the time they have it because um, I really liked what both of the other authors said. Everybody seems to be coming at this from a place of love. I have mm-hmm. a, my motto is be funny, be honest, be kind. And if you're in the book, you're in the book because I think you're a badass and I want everybody to know about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, if, but, you know, you think about that story, you can cut this if you want, but with that story in particular, some people kept their names. So my friend Patty, uh, who became, who's my best friend. And, you know, I say, I judge a friend by how much you tell me about your sex life and how soon. Mm-hmm. So I set Patty up with her husband and the morning after their first date, she calls me and it's whispering about how terrific the date was. And I said, why are you whispering? And she said, he's laying right beside me. Um, oh, my God. She, as I say in the book, you know, she later described his penis as taking up half her twin mattress. And so I said that to Patty. And she says, well, I think, Helen, 25 years ago, what I said was that his penis was as big as a baby's arm holding an apple. But I like yours better. So we'll keep the mattress well of course any dude is gonna like that metaphor going out in print and he's gonna want his name used yeah it does occur to me that you know one of the things I really love about your book is how loving you are toward your friends and how celebratory you are toward people's quirks and foibles I think like a, a meaner writer would have written about the things that people say or do in a way to make fun of them or to belittle them and again and again in your book the only person you ever make fun of is yourself and when you talk, <laughs> but when you, when you talk about other people, you're normally making them fully human in a way that is celebratory and delicious. Um, I, I I really admire that you were able to do that for a book and never seem like a goody two shoes. You know. Thank you. Well, I I, was yeah. that I I took the example because um, Colson Whitehead had a book come out a few years ago called The Noble Hustle about the noble hustle about playing poker um, in the world series. And I was his coach. And so he sent me the book where I appear and he says, if you want to change anything, we'll mm-hmm. change it. And I said, no, no, I look like a badass. Um, and so I did he I, give you a big penis. No, <laughs> but he did. He did make me look like a badass. I will say. And I, and I, and so I, I definitely use that, that um, procedure. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and and people have corrected me. It's always interesting to see what people will change. Like in that very first story, it's about a, one friend who is battling and survives cancer, but it's an, about another friend who's come out of a very bad marriage and remarried and survived. And I, there's a moment where her father says to her, "If you leave your husband, 
I will give you your inheritance of $30,000 now. And then she remarried this loving, you know, kind veterinarian. So only mm-hmm. thing she changed was I thought she's going to want to take that number out, that $30,000 number out. Mm-hmm. He left that because she wanted to make it clear, you know, that's how she got out of that marriage. Um, yeah. But her, she let her husband, her new second husband, read it, and he says she forgot to write the word handsome, and so I put the word handsome. <laughs> oh my God! Again, with making everybody look good. Yeah, please put me in a book. I'll be tall and blonde. You know, please, please make me a character. Okay. Um, so it, it, that, that's awesome, Helen. I really, truly, um, Lauren, your situation with writing about people in real life is obviously going to be more complicated because there's some pretty big bad guys, you know, in, in what in the story you have to tell. So you can't just, you know, give everyone like a, a flattering husband who's handsome role, you know, like how, how, did you struggle with the truth? Did you leave things out? Like, how did you negotiate it? I mean, Jay wanted me to mention that he has a big penis. <laughs> um, they really did. It's <laughs> the one great thing about writing what gave it is they don't, the, the lawyer, went through the book and was like is he okay with you portraying him as kind of a whore and I'm like oh, he's proud of it um, <laughs> he's just mad I didn't mention how big his penis is yeah other people really I think the gay men whose names I didn't have to change <laughs> my my bosses and Jay uh my family I just changed everybody's names um mm-hmm. I changed little details one of my sisters is mad that her job is not quite as cool as her actual job i said she was a nurse and like yeah she's she's not thrilled with that job um i think i learned writing the cable guy piece it's not i was worried the first time that the the cheneys would balk about me mentioning them so i had someone pull the work order a guy i used to work with like make sure that i was prepared and nobody was bad about any of that my boss my former boss was mad because he he didn't think he was he didn't think he was being as homophobic as I made him sound about sending him to the Cheney's house he's like well I was just I was trying to do you a favor because they were nice not because they were lesbians <laughs> and uh, like I you know Eric it's how I took it it's fine it's like nobody mm-hmm. thinks you're a homophobe it's you're fine I promise you yeah, nobody was going to get mad about the thing you think they're going to get mad about. And it's never the person you think will get mad. Mm-hmm. So I just don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm not, uh, for the most part, I'm not writing about friends. So I just change everybody's name and mm-hmm. try to not give too many identifying details. Because, yeah, I may think you suck, but maybe you don't. And there's no need. So other than that, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. I, I don't know how to balance it. I just, I write through the whole thing and then I change a couple things so that I'm not quite painting a target on them. <laughs> yeah, okay. That sounds fair enough. How about you, Amy? How do, how do you handle writing about people? Yeah, I, it hasn't really completely come up for me too much. And uh, I love, Helen, your your kind of guidelines for, for doing that. So I'm going to file that away myself. I love that. Um, and I was trying to think of like, who was it? Who was the writer who said something like, um, if you wanted, I'm butchering it now, but something like, if you wanted to, like, I don't know, appear nicer, in my, or if you wanted to come out better in my book, you should have been nicer to me or something like that. Like, I don't know who said that. I'm butchering the, the quote. I, it just hasn't been, come up in the things that I've written about. I think um, 
things that I'm writing now are for kids. So it's not, and you know, there's a part of me too, you know, it's the uh, Carly Simon, you're so vain. I bet, you know, as far as my ex-boyfriends go, I almost don't want to give the satisfaction of naming them because that mm-hmm. they are so vain. They would absolutely think this something mm-hmm. essays about them. So I love kind of deliciously never naming them. <laughs> um, nice. So, so really it hasn't come up, but this is all such a fascinating com- um, conversation mm-hmm. for me um, as well. I think the closest it can be is like, I think I've made a conscious decision. My parents don't always completely know what it is I do <laughs> um, still, mm-hmm. you know, or how, um, how, uh, you know, how my book is out there or, or anything like that. And, you know, even when I was a poet, it was even more strange. So I try not to, and there's, there really honestly hasn't been too much, but I think I wouldn't ever deliberately show them in a not flattering way. Just, I, I just, mm-hmm. that's not the relationship we have. And even if, of course, our relationships are not perfect, but I think it would break my heart to know that they're sad about anything I write. So that alone is already too much for me to, to bear. Nothing that I want to write about is like bottled up inside of me trying to protect them. That's not even the case. So the closest thing it would would be is just about some wayward exes that I don't want to give them the satisfaction of ever writing about them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm actually ready to ask my last question, but you kind of like led us into it, Amy. And I do want to know, and this is actually my least favorite question because I'm like, I wrote a book, leave me alone, but what are y'all working on now? So you said you're writing for kids. Can you tell us just a smidge about it? Yeah, I always feel a little like, uh, I don't know what the word is. I'm not superstitious, but I feel like um, when I say it, then it's going to change into something else. And then I, I can't, I, like, uh, I don't want it to change right now. But um, I'm writing um, a middle grade kind of, it started out as a kind of memoir in verse, but I think I'm having fun making things up. So it's a novel in verse right now. And oh. that's a little tricky, but it's all poems. They're... Um, uh, it's a, a an Asian American girl who plays tennis, but is also getting fitted for saris um, and has crushes. It's kind of me, not me, you know, <laughs> that kind mm-hmm. of the crushes that are all unrequited. No, none of the football <laughs> players ever paid attention. So, and it's, it's just been fun. It's a whole different kind of writing. It's really hard. Um, I'm loving reading things um, like from Jacqueline Woodson and Linda Sue Park. Um, authors that I've only seen like kind of on the periphery, but now I'm digging into their work and seeing how they put together poems to build a narrative. Um, so that's been, that's been exciting. Um, but poems, always poems on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grown up poems. And you, Lauren, besides writing about Shamrock, Texas, is there another thing that you're working on? <laughs> besides Shamrock, Texas. I've got, yeah, I'm supposed to be writing a proposal. I, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I thought it was another argument with my agent, Jamie, who was always right. He said I should write a dog book, and I said that was dumb, and then I thought about it. And I thought it might be funny if I write the upside-down dog book where the dog dies at the beginning. Oh! Um, <laughs> ruins my life, and I never find love because I can't go on a fucking date because I hate cats <laughs> and dogs and people. I mean, I loved the dog a lot, and he ruined my damn life. <laughs> um so i realized that might be kind of funny if i do that also, like a yeah. modern love column so yeah i, I might I, i'm i'm trying to figure out how to do that in the meantime i'm finally able to like read 
again, which is really exciting because it's been a while. Finally able to write a couple things again. So, well, Lauren Huff, only you could make a dog's death funny. Really, I, I think no one can do it but you. So you should write that, and I will buy it. It was, it was really appears. funny. We were burying him and talking about taking his body out of the back of my car. And my nephew was like, I mean, I don't like, well, that's his head's there and his legs are there. And we thought it was my niece standing behind us. It was the pizza guy. <laughs> and it, at no point did we say the word body or dog. <laughs> so I'm not sure whose body we thought we were. He was, we were um, yeah, he might still be telling that story of the time he showed up to a house where they were burying someone's body. So yeah, yeah I figured why not? If I start there, maybe it's not going to be the worst, most depressing book. Oh my gosh. Baby. I'm sure it won't be in your hands and you're very capable. Hands. <laughs> Thank you for that. And that brings us over to you, Helen. What are you working on now? Well, this is the first time I've ever had an answer for that. Uh, I, okay. I happily signed a contract in February. I'm writing a third book of essays and this is all about my happy marriage. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Which includes my first colonoscopy. <laughs> 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 yeah, during, yes. during, during COVID, where he had to wait on the street, pick me up like a bucket of fried chicken. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and again, only you could write that story. So, this is another like on brand, amazing kismet serendipity. <laughs> I'm dying to read that book. Y'all, I've enjoyed our hour together so much, and it's only the perfect like frosting on the cake of a deep dive into your books that, um, brought so much to my life thank you all for sharing your talents with the mississippi book festival and we beg you to come when we are in person next year or some year soon we throw a great party and y'all will be guests of honor thank you thank you thank you so much thanks all take care right on mississippi is produced in partnership with mississippi public broadcasting for the mississippi book festival the south's literary lawn party